As we continue on in 1 Peter today, and you can open your Bible to that book if you'd like to, we're going to look at how the words of Jesus apply to some of the most complicated situations that people can find themselves in. Now, I'm always interested in application of the Bible. That's something that every time I read the Bible, my heart is, I mean, I'm interested in the, the details and I'm interested in the cultural background, but what I really want to know is what does God want me to know? What is the application of this truth to life? And when I was studying for this section of 1 Peter that we're going to cover today, what I realized is that Peter is actually helping us learn how to apply the words of Jesus to life. And so when we study it, we, we study it obviously as part of God's Word, but also when we're kind of looking at the, the theme of what's going on, we're saying here, here Peter is looking at people that are facing immense pressure, persecution, suffering, despair, and he's saying to them, here's how you do it. You want to follow Jesus? Here's how it's got to look. And then let's break it down. Let's talk about application into specific situations that I know some of you are in. So when we read 1 Peter, it's important that we know a little bit about the situation that they were in because it's written not just sort of in generalities to all Christians of all time. It's, it's written to some very specific people who were dealing with challenges, some of which are familiar to us and some of which are very different. So we're going to look at that in just a second. Here's our outline. And last week, when I realized that I could not be here uh, because of Melissa's illness, um, I, I called Dell, um, who's on standby, and said, Dell, you can't take the next part of the text. Like, I want it. So you're going to have to come up with something else to say that'll fit in the series. So thankfully, he was willing to do that. And uh, he kind of went back and talked about how you can thrive in your faith and uh, so I'm glad he, he did that. So we widened out our outline a little bit, uh, moving what if my world is all wrong to today. We're going to start reading in verse 11, all right? This, this book, um, when you think of who Peter was speaking to, he was speaking to people who mostly were newer believers, and they were facing immediate pressure from their government, from their culture, sometimes from their families, from their workplaces, Everything in their culture was organized against following Jesus. And yet here they were saying, well, we want to follow Jesus. How do we do it? And every time we follow Jesus, we're getting all this pushback. Sometimes we're even getting physical threats. We're being assaulted. We're being pushed aside. We're being persecuted. And Peter says, here's how to do it. So here's how we can live when our world is messed up. Say, well, it wasn't just the first century that the world was messed up. It's also messed up here in the 21st century. So let's start in verse 11, see what the scripture says. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether to the king as the head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and honor those who do right. It is God's will that by your honorable lives you should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. 
For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. Push pause. Who was the king when Peter wrote these words from Rome? The Roman emperor who was who? Nero. The worst case scenario for the king that you're supposed to respect. It wasn't like he was you know, some grand historical figure with positive reforms. Yeah, respect that guy. That's easy. But how in the world are you going to respect Nero, who's a murderous, crazy tyrant who's directly persecuting you? Peter says, respect the king. Live at peace. It's challenging. How would you do that? says you're free i'm like you know wink wink we all know that in christ we're part of something way bigger than this world than this empire than any kingdom of earth than any system on earth don't use your freedom as a cover-up to do evil to make a bigger mess of things recognize who you are but also recognize that now you're a visitor you're a foreigner in this culture in this world so the way you act is going to have to be different than if you thought of this world as your home. So point one to Christians who are under persecution, respect the king. We'll come back to this in just a minute. Second component here, verse 18, takes it a step further. You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they're kind and reasonable, but also when they're cruel. For God is pleased when, conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you're beaten for doing the wrong thing, but if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example and you must follow in his steps. Right there, that phrase, that's the key to understanding this whole thing. How do I live in a messed up world? What do I do when the world's against me? He is your example. You follow in his steps. However Jesus lived, that's how you live now as his follower. Verse 22, he never sinned. He never deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered which are exactly the things that we're tempted to do when we're under pressure. Jesus didn't do those things. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what's right. By his wounds you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. In the same way. Well, in the same way as what? In the same way as the slaves have to deal with this complex situation, in the same way you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Now we read this as Americans, and we think this is aiming at us. It's not. 
This is aiming at women who are under oppression in a very wicked and patriarchal system. These are women who have no voice. These are women who have no standing in society. And when one of them decides to become a Christian, they're looking up to heaven going, what do I do? I'm stuck. So Peter addresses them. We'll we'll dive into this a little further later. Verse 3, don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham when he called, when, and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. In the same way, you husbands must honor, give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but you are her equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so that your prayers will not be hindered. Finally, all of you be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. So let's pray for the Holy Spirit's understanding this morning. Holy Spirit, we look at this text knowing that in these words, not only are there directions to Christians who were in oppressive situations in the first century, but also there is a key to how we can follow you in our century. So help us to understand what that key is, and this morning, to turn it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The key... I believe, to understanding everything that Peter's saying to these different groups of people is in verse 11. When he says, I warn you as temporary residents, as foreigners in this situation, he's saying, you're, when you become a Christian, you're no longer tied to the culture of this world in the same way. In fact, it's kind of like you're stepping into a completely different culture. If you were to hop on an airplane today and fly to the other side of the world and step off into some other cultural context, you would walk in and you would have all of your sort of American values in your heart, but you'd be walking into a place that doesn't recognize any of those values and isn't structured to recognize those values. And in fact, if you started to live in kind of an American way in some other country, you might face pushback pretty quickly, right? You try free speech in Iran or China or something, that's not going to work. So, so as you're a visitor in this world, you kind of imagine the situation where you're stepping off the plane, but not just to another country, but to planet Earth itself. 
and you're looking around and you don't exactly belong, your value system is completely different, but you're, you still have to operate somehow in the messed up value system of the world that's there. So you're step, you're, you're, you live in the system that's there, even though it's not your system. We recognize that we're visitors here. And we'll come back to that. The world in Peter's time was a disaster, morally and spiritually. I'll leave it to you to decide if the world of our time is a disaster, morally and spiritually. If you walk out into the world and you think, yes, this world is helping me follow Jesus. The systems of this world are all aligned for my maximization of spiritual life. I don't feel that way. I would imagine you don't either. And so we say, I think I have something in common with the people Peter's writing to here because our world is also a disaster. So how could Christians ever be able to apply the Jesus way in a world gone so wrong? Especially when the more they do it, the more they stick out, which then brings more suffering. So that's what was happening. You imagine the gospel going into some village where a slave hears the good news about Jesus that their life has purpose, that there's an eternal inheritance, that there's a reason for them to try in life, and now they're excited, their heart leaps with joy, finally I have meaning, but then they're still sitting at their master's table, they're still sleeping in the quarters for the slave. Like, how are they supposed to live the life of Jesus and be free when they're a slave in this world? the more that they would try to apply that in any kind of external way, the more pushback they would get. Hey, now imagine that, that some woman hears the gospel and, and she decides to give her heart to Jesus and, and suddenly her life, her perspective starts changing. I've, I have value, I have purpose, I can't wait to go worship Jesus. Within, in, and then suddenly she steps forward and there's her husband standing right in front of her saying no. Husbands in that time, we'll talk about this in just a minute, Maybe in our framework, a little bit more the way the Taliban would treat women would have been the cultural norms at that time. So if you're that Christian woman in that kind of a relationship, stuck, what do you do? How are you going to follow Jesus in that? Hey, then you, you kind of zoom out and you think about anybody who becomes a Christian during this time, they're looking at their government leaders who are actively passing edicts for their death, for their their destruction trying to extinguish Christianity. What am I supposed to do? How do I live like Jesus in the face of that? In our world, we might ask it this way. What would Jesus do if he were in my shoes? So you, you own a business, you face some pressure, and now you have to make an ethical decision. What would Jesus do in my shoes? You're a soldier, you're in a foxhole somewhere, you stand up, you realize this is the moment of decision for you in my shoes, what would Jesus do? Anywhere you are in life or in history, you ask this question and it starts to give you the answer. So I think the first century church was facing a, a massive test in this moment of whether or not they would really follow Jesus when it really got difficult. That's why in chapter 1 he said your faith is being tested. That's our fire theme. Like fire. I mean, like fire is refining gold. That's how your faith is getting tested. Can you, are you going to endure that or give up along the way? It says no matter who you are, no matter what your situation is, even if it's endlessly complicated and impossible, the place to start 
is to act like Jesus would. So, we're going to break it down and just walk through the text and see the different people groups he talks to and how it applies to them. So, the first one, what should I do if my government and my culture turn against me? You, look, you wake up one day and realize you're not welcome anymore. And the more that it's obvious that you're a Christian, the less welcome you are. That's where these people were. Look at verse 12. It says, your unbelieving neighbors are out there. They're watching. And he says, be careful to live properly in front of them. Recognize they're watching you. And then in verse 13, for the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority. Which in their sad world, in that moment, would have been incredibly difficult to do. Maybe externally you could go through the motions, but really difficult to have that in your heart when those authorities are directly aligned against you. The next group that he refers to are slaves. What should I do if I'm a slave in an unjust, immoral system? Say, where did Rome get all of its slaves? Do you remember from history class? Conquest, right? All the defeated people groups as they kind of rampaged across the globe, they would take the best and the brightest, and a lot of them ended up in the city of Rome to the point where a big percentage of the city of Rome was actually just slaves, not even citizens. All across the empire it was that way. It was the accepted practice. You hoped, if you were going to be a slave, that you would have a nice master, but there was no guarantee, there was no appeal, there was no way out, there was no protest movement. Well, they tried a few times and it didn't work. So what do you do if you wake up one day and go, okay, I'm following Jesus, I'm free in my heart, I have a vision for the future, but oh, I'm still a slave. Well, he says in verse 18, you who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they're kind and reasonable, but even if they're cruel. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Just like the general church out there was supposed to be thinking about the heavenly kingdom instead of the mess of the earthly kingdom, now zooming down to a very personal level, a slave who's trapped in this system, rather than just getting angry and frustrated and feeling no purpose and feeling defeated every turn, looks up to heaven and says, you know what, Lord, I'm going to follow your will. And even if I'm treated unjustly, I'm going to continue to press on with a good attitude. Now, it's easy for us to say here, none of us being slaves, but I would imagine that was incredibly difficult, especially, as it says, when the masters were cruel. Well, where do they get the inspiration for that? How do they stay on that track? Well, follow Jesus. So he breaks it down. He says, Jesus was treated just like that. Jesus, they insulted him. They persecuted him. He didn't seek revenge. He gave us an example of how to deal with injustice and suffering. And he looks at another group. What should I do if I'm a woman being devalued by cultural patriarchy? Patriarchy is a fancy word to say guys get to be in charge of everything. Women don't have a voice. Sadly, that's been the story for most of human history and most cultures. So here, it's ugly. 
It's terrible. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But you're a Christian woman in a non-Christian household. In all likelihood, your husband could get away with beating you, hurting you, divorcing you, doing whatever. There was no, it wasn't like there were women's rights. So here, what are you going to do if you follow Jesus? The more you follow Jesus, the further away from your household and your husband's authority you're going to go. There's one commentator who kind of broke this down. I thought it was really helpful. Um, Karen Jobes explains this. In Greco-Roman society, it was expected that the wife would have no friends of her own and would worship the gods of her husband. The very fact that a woman would adopt any religion other than her husband's would violate the idea of an orderly home. So it wasn't like it is now where we all believe our own thing and, you know, if you don't agree, you just agree to get along. That wasn't how the world worked. The husband held all the cards. So what do you do? Because prosperity and well-being were seen as dependent on religious forces, disorder in the home was a threat not only to the family but also to society. Second, the husband and society would perceive the wife's worship of Jesus Christ as rebellion. The husband would suffer criticism for not properly managing his household. So her private faith wasn't private faith. If she decides to stop worshiping the gods of the household and start worshiping Jesus, it's, it's going to turn up the pressure on the unbelieving husband as well. So what do you think they would do? Well, they would turn up pressure on their wife. You've got to forsake this. You've got to give this up. You can't do this to me. This could damage his social standing, even to the point of disqualifying him for certain titles or offices. So this is messy, right? If you're that woman, say, what would Jesus do if he were in my shoes? One other element of this, the wife's attendance at Christian worship would provide the opportunity for her to have fellowship with other Christians who are possibly not her husband's friends. The antagonism her faith might produce, that is, from her husband, is to be endured for the sake of Christ, for the, for the possible conversion of her husband. So here we're looking at these women who are under oppression. And he says, in the same way, slaves, here's what you need to do to follow Jesus in your twisted situation. Now women who are being treated unjustly, here's what you're to do. So we look at chapter 3, verse 1. You wives must accept the authority of your husbands. And you could imagine the wives going, what? How can I do that? My husband's an idolater. My husband is, he's evil. He's terrible. Then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing the pure, your pure and reverent lives. And then he gives some direction that, you know, for, for these women, don't, don't be tempted to try to charm, this, charm your way out of this situation. Because living like Jesus, that's not, that's not the path uh, to solving this. Don't be concerned about outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, jewelry, clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. Your value, your purpose, your voice, it's being drawn from God, not from the approval of your husband. So this is how the holy women of the old made themselves beautiful. 
They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him master. You are her daughters if you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. This is referencing a text in Genesis where Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt and they were in a cultural scenario um, where their arrangement was not workable and Abraham had what he thought was a brilliant idea. Everybody else kind of rolls their eyes and go, Abraham, that's not going to work. Sarah goes along with this um, and, and as a result of her faith to trust God, even though the human plan was a terrible plan, God says this, this, is, this is what she had to do in that situation. And so there's this, this little bit of I don't know, connection between Sarah and Abraham and these believing women in Asia Minor who are under this pressure. Saying sometimes you put your faith in God even though the situation doesn't make sense. So we don't look at this and say, oh, that's ideal. None of, none of what we're reading right now is ideal. Slavery is not ideal. Patriarchy is not ideal. These are all things that come from the human system that Jesus frees us from. We're still working on all that across the world. The next piece of the puzzle is to the man. What should I do if I'm a man in a society that devalues women? It's interesting if you look back at this era, the, the letters and the poetry and the philosophy of this era was not addressed to women or slaves because they weren't valued. There was no voice. So everything was addressed to the guys, to the free guys. And, and so even when Peter wrote this and spoke directly to slaves and women, that in itself was revolutionary. The fact that you'd be reading along here and go, whoa, it's talking to me. Nobody had talked to them before. Here's how you make it through this difficult time. So you imagine the husbands, they're used to having it always be their way. There was never any question. Women couldn't lead anything. Women couldn't say anything. Women were stuck as essentially not that different than a slave in their household. So verse 7, Peter speaks to that with gentleness, but quite subversive to the norms of the day. He says, in the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. And they go, what? None of the other husbands have to do that. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. I say, what? My wife's job is to understand me and my needs. We're going to turn this all around? That's what Jesus came to do. She may be weaker than you are, but, you, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. So you kind of think back to when, when he says to the slaves, you know, hey, you're free, but you can't use your freedom as some sort of cover-up to be evil. And he says to the wives, like, hey, we, we all know you are an equal partner in the life of God. But here in this challenging circumstance, here's how you walk the way Jesus would walk when you're in that circumstance. Treat her as you should so that your prayers will not be hindered. Which is a fairly forceful threat to these guys. But if you don't treat your wife the way that Jesus would treat her, God is not going to listen to you. The last aspect of this world gone wrong would apply to any one of us in any situation. In such a messed up culture, how do we keep from getting jaded and cynical and selfish 
Like you look around and you go, wait a minute, every system here is aligned against me. For the first century Christians, the federal government system, the empire was against them. Their local leaders, many times, were against them. Their families were against them. Everything in their culture would say to them, give up, forget it. And you either give up and forget it, or you get really angry inside and you live your life in bitterness. Is there any other path besides that? Well, verse 8. Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and He will grant you His blessing. So we're right back to the Sermon on the Mount. Pray for the people who persecute you. Love your enemies. Do good to the people who don't do good to you. And, and it's as if the, you know, that all sounded good on the mountain, and the disciples are taking their notes, but now here, a few decades later, the pressure is really on. Is it really possible to live that way when you're being directly persecuted? Is it really possible for that Christian woman to actually still walk like Jesus when her whole household is pushing her the opposite direction? Is it possible for a slave who's stuck in an earthly plight of which there's no realistic way for him to ever be free? Is there any hope for him to follow Jesus, to live the free life? The answer is to look up beyond this world. Say whether the government is good or bad, whether, whether your household is good or bad, whether the system that you're in is good or bad, you recognize that is not what defines me. Instead, I look toward heaven and say that is my life, my calling, and I draw my value from that, not from what this world says to me. So when we face the evils of this world, we aren't driven to despair or defeat. Now, that's tempting, right? You turn on the news and feel despair and defeat for lots of different reasons. It could do that to you. Here's your other option. Instead, like Jesus, we're driven to love and compassion. So think of this. Jesus on the cross, arms stretched out. The guards are nailing his hands to the wood. And what is on his mind? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Love and compassion. When Jesus is faced with suffering and pressure, his response was not to lash out in anger. His response was to be filled with love because the pressure and suffering is under was evidence of how much the world needed to change. And so we look around as visitors walking around in this foreign culture saying, wow, all of this mess that's around me, this just proves that the good news is actually good news. That there's freedom, there's joy, there's equality, there's purpose all of that's available, and it might not happen in this life, in this world, but I look toward the kingdom of God and say, that is the person that I am in my heart. That's who, that's who I'm striving to be. And as I recognize that, it empowers me then to live like Jesus. As Jesus was able to entrust his cause to God, so can I. When injustice happens, when reasons for bitterness surface, I don't have to let those define me. Instead, I can say, Lord, this is why we need you in this world. Just my situation is another living proof of how much the gospel is needed. So remember, 
The next time you're facing pressure, the next time things don't seem fair, the next time you look at some scenario you're in and go, this just isn't right. You are a visitor in this world. And at every step, you can apply the way of Jesus by asking, what would Jesus do if he were in my shoes? He is our example. We follow in his steps. I don't look at 1 Peter and say, well, all of this prescribes the life we should live now. No, these are first century problems. Thankfully, some of these have been kind of defeated, at least in Western cultures for the moment. But we say, Lord, whatever scenario I'm in, I want to follow you and act the way that you would act. So when you're facing injustice, here's what could be in your mind. First of all, this world is passing away. Remember, our faith is getting refined like fire so that it can last forever. But everything else is going to fall away. God's promises to you are eternal. Your job is to act like Jesus no matter what. Expect your reward from God, not from the unbelieving culture around you. The people who this was written to, they never got to live to see the day when any of these things changed. That happened centuries later. Your mission is to share the revolutionary, transformational love of God. Now, something I think is amazing, that 1 Peter does call for revolution. You say, well, I, didn't, I don't read that. I just read, you know, submit to the king and to all these bad people. The revolution is actually a revolution against the normal way of doing revolutions. That rather than standing up and demanding something and claiming what's yours and spilling blood over it, instead, the way of Jesus here is to actually act like Jesus when it isn't fair and when justice isn't being done. And when you do that, you stand against the system of this world and the system that's controlling that system. Instead of fighting evil with evil, you actually overcome evil with good, like Jesus did. He is our example. We follow in his steps. Say, is there ever a time to stand against some system? Sure. If you wake up one morning and you say, as a Christ follower today in this moment, what Jesus would do is resist, then resist with all your heart. But if you wake up one day and you realize that you're in a situation where even though you're uncomfortable and even though it isn't fair, the way of Jesus would be to not return insult with insult, but instead to walk forward in love, then you do that with all of your heart. Every situation is going to be different in every century, in every person's life, in every country. I mean, you could make a long, long list of what if, what if, what if. The answer is always the same. If Jesus was in your shoes, what would he do? To the best of your ability, you say, Lord, that's who I want to be. That's what I want to do. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. It's possible that some of us are facing this kind of thing right now. I don't know your life exactly, but maybe, maybe you need 1 Peter 3.9. It's possible that we'll all face it together in the future. When that moment comes, we'll have that same choice to make that these first century believers had. In the midst of me stepping into a foreign culture, in a world that isn't my home, how will I act? What will I do? Will I carry myself the way Jesus carried himself?
We're visitors in this world. When we're faithful, all of that says that is what God has called you to do. He will grant you his blessing. So let's ask him for the grace to live that way. Lord, as we see in this application from Peter to slaves, to mistreated women, to persecuted churches, such a countercultural reaction, not just in the following of you, but in not reacting the way all of our emotions would want to react to these situations, but instead following you all the way to the cross. Lord, that is an amazing revolution, and I don't know if any of us in this room could fully grasp what that means. But each day, we want to take the right next step forward to follow you, to follow your example, and in doing so, to really change the world. We look forward to doing that. In Jesus' name, amen.